Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? Life's a bitch and then you die, right? Sometimes. Sometimes life's a bitch and then you keep living. Look, Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, the longtime New York Times columnist, David Brooks, your boy, tweeted, (laughs) if you're part of that small shrinking band who still think cancel culture is a myth, read this compassionate piece from Yasha Munk. Are you finally convinced now? (laughs) Uh, My name is David Pizarro from Cornell University. Uh, who's Yasha Monk? Who's that? I, I, so he's a guy that all of a sudden in this new reality writes for the Atlantic and everybody loves, but I had never heard of him before, like six months ago. And now he's, Mm -hmm. you know, he's a darling of the centrist media. Yeah. Yes. I see. It's kind of you to call them centrist. I mean, they're, um, (laughs) (laughs) but like, I, like, I don't have anything against him. This, Okay. I have a lot of thoughts about this, but before, because I know I'm going to ramble on, uh, let's just say what we're actually going to talk about in segment two, uh, which is the wonderful Borges story, Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote. So your the, your question allows me just a little bit of freedom to talk about the reaction we had to last episode's opening segment. Um and I won't meander on that. A lot of our listeners agreed with us and reached out to us and told us they they loved it. And a lot of a lot of listeners disagreed. And there were very vocal discussions on Reddit and on Twitter. But I respect them all, and I like that our listeners disagree with us. Let, but specifically, your question about cancel culture, I think it's a problem. I just don't know that it is uh, as it has changed as much as people think it has. Like, I'll, and let me say but with a quick story. In, in 1992, during the riots in LA, uh, I had a professor, a teacher in high school who uh, got canceled. He basically said something that was insensitive and the black students in our, in our school, very small school, were for some of them were very offended and it just kind of destroyed his life as a teacher. I don't like that. And I don't want people to think that when we talk about whether or not it's a problem or whether or not there's hysterics on the side of the IDW or whatever, that they overblow it. Yeah. And I think that um, it is a problem. And I think that there is, there's a great deal of hysterics on both sides of this issue. And what I don't like is people not, (laughs) not, 
not calling crazy when it's crazy. Um, I, like, like you and I were talking about the taking down of movies from like Netflix or HBO. I don't like that. Yeah, I don't like. I that. think it's stupid. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, I think that as much as you might, so I'll, I'll let you talk now. It creeps into these areas of complete, I think, hysteria where where I think it shouldn't. And sometimes it it is about canceling people's lives in a way that I, I don't think they should be canceled. They should be called out. But I don't, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, it's very hard to talk about because I totally agree, like in the individual cases that are real, you know, like there are yeah. those cases and I think those are bad and I don't like taking down Gone with the Wind and I don't like putting it back with a prologue telling you how to think about <laughs> Gone with the Wind, like people are children. Uh, oh, I didn't know. Yeah, they did that. They did. Like, I don't like, <laughs> I don't like any of that. At the same time, I think that overblowing the threat of that is a like I, I is also a problem and a big problem. It is, and it feeds. It, it totally feeds into the fact that a lot of people are now preemptively trying to fight against getting canceled because they believe right. that it exactly. might happen. It's and a recurring like loop of things. And it also makes people scared. Like it makes academics say like absurd things. Like I'm terrified to speak in front of my liberal students for fear of offending somebody and get canceled, getting canceled, even though, right. and where is Steven Pinker's stats when it comes to the possibility of that happening to an academic right. in the United States, even though it's vanishingly small, the fact that it's all a certain, segment of media talks about is, I think, a big problem that also deserves to be, you know, criticized. But I totally agree with you that I, I hate that shit. A lot of the woke stuff, yeah. a lot of the things. And, and not only that, we've yeah. said this. It's not like we haven't said this. It's not like we didn't <laughs> yeah, defend yeah. the Dave Chappelle special. It's not like we haven't said some right. things that are suppo that supposedly should have gotten us canceled and fired about Louis C.K. Right. It's not like we like right. all the like we've said all this stuff. And yeah. actually, the reason I, I sent that opening question is because my stepmother sent me that text. Uh, like, all right, now <laughs> you're going to be convinced because David Brooks tweeted something by Yasha Monk. Uh, I, can I just say something about Yasha Monk that just occurred to me? There is a little bit of a Mandela effect going on with Yasha Monk. Like, I, I think people talk about him like he has been part of our reality for, you know, the last 10 years. And I think if you are from the universe, maybe that you and I are from either like you, you've never heard of him or I've just yeah. started hearing about him all of a sudden. Right. So, right. you know, that's not that's you don't hear people talk about that. Yeah, I swear to God, I've never, I've never heard his name at all. I mean, I'm not, the, I'm not a standard of <laughs> of knowledge about goings on in the in the world of the Atlantic elite liberal East Coast, <laughs> right? Yeah, you Cornell. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, yeah. I think you know there there is a difference between how many people have actually gotten canceled as a metric of the so-called epidemic of cancel culture and of um, how much those people getting canceled has affected the discourse. And I think that that, that second thing, the amount that cancel culture uh, has actually affect those cancellations have actually affected people's psychology. That's probably the thing we were pushing against because we didn't want that to, to be true. We don't want people to live in fear of being canceled. And part of not feeding into it is for like the big, big media companies. It would be nice to see maybe a little more backbone from some of the people who actually 
have power, you know, nobody has any stomach for if somebody if, if just like a few people on Twitter say take down that episode of community, they'll just do it, you know. Yeah, because like, like it's right. not it's not, it doesn't right. hurt their bottom line. So <laughs> they took one of the services. I don't remember which one took down the it might have been Netflix took down the episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where they remake right. uh, or they they make um, uh, Lethal Weapon 5 and they totally do blackface. That was when you joined the intellectual dark web. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what it made me do? Just go to Hulu and watch that episode again. <laughs> <laughs> like that's <laughs> it's a very funny episode and, and in the, in that case i think um they're actually those those it's always sunny people are making are using that to to comment on race in a way that i think is actually intelligent it's in the guise of stu- stupid jokes um and that's what i hope doesn't doesn't uh stop happening you know what are they going to say like roots don't show roots because it depicts slavery and that's disrespectful for you know it's like at some point I'm like but just, it won't because uh, like this has happened before it's not like this is the first time this has mm-hmm. happened and like that's there's right. a little flare up and then people kind of because it's not fun to be constantly worried about offending yeah. the most offendable person in your audience it's not good for art it's not good for just a productive environment a learning environment it's just not good for anybody and the vast majority of people realize that and so like yeah i'm not i'm not pessimistic about that but then i'm not yeah. that pessimistic a person <laughs> even though the world yeah. is giving me every reason <laughs> all right so i don't know that that we have enough time left to discuss the specific thing we were going to discuss for this segment but it was very related and that is uh the My Little Pony controversy, Tamler. Did you know about this? I didn't. And so I saw this headline. I tweeted it. Uh, My Little Pony fans are ready to admit they have a Nazi problem. And like it, it's such a bizarre headline <laughs> if you don't know any context or anything about like, you know, how, how that right. headline could possibly be real. Pretty so the good. first thing you have to know, which is. It's just that a lot of adults and guys love My Little Pony and have like there's a whole subculture of posting about it. And because I'm not like that, like not with My Little Pony specifically, but just with like kids shows, like I had no idea that that anybody watched or or talked about My Little Pony who wasn't three. I had a vague knowledge. That this existed, this subculture? That existed, uh, that this subculture existed, and I think it was from a parody of it in Bob's Burgers episode where there is very much a a, a middle-aged white guy subculture of, what, it's not called My Little Pony, but I, I thought it was uh, completely made up. I haven't <laughs> seen that. I like Bob's Burgers, but I'm new to it, <laughs> but I, I really like it. Yeah, so apparently there are these men who are referred to as bronies. Who it's so hard and take this seriously? I guess that's this irony. Ed, yeah, and again, this is not something I can relate to. So I, I feel like you can though. Can you can like explain um, this a little more? I mean, I think that you know, I have a love for eighties cartoons. I was brought up with it. I can see this weird. It's not the kind of ironic liking that I'm. But like, I don't like that level of irony. Mm-hmm. And I can I can see people taking it up, um, which you know it's. They started just because the internet can collect people, can unite people of these like very, very weird subcultures. Um, it probably grew that way with with people 
just expressing a fondness, nostalgic fondness for this shit. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't get my little pony specifically, but I get, you know, I would, I'm, I am the kind of person who would wear a Care Bears t-shirt because of the funniness of having grown up with a Care Bears, you know, loving the uh, Care Bears. cartoons in my life or whatever. So I can relate to getting really into a kid's show when I'm watching it with like my four or five year old daughter, <laughs> you know, like I would do that all the time. I was like, I, I knew yeah. like word girls by heart or but i would watch all that shit and and like it but i would never post about it i would no these are childless people that, these that's are not right. these are not fathers exactly <laughs> i think that that there's nobody here who has children right and if they You're do right. they the children should be taken away from them <laughs> anyway so so the whole thing about this is apparently there is a very strong subculture within the, that subculture that is white supremacist. Yeah, like almost I, mostly them, right? Uh, yeah, well, no, I got a sense from the article that there are that the so Derpy Buru is the name of the community online community. <laughs> uh, it's so hard, and and the article at least made it sound that the vast majority of things are just like you know like cute like life affirming kinds of memes and pictures that are, that are uh, posted. It's just that there also is this complete Nazi uh, segment of it. Um, and I think the, so the article is, I think is, is motivated by the fact that Derpe Buru finally said like, Hey, no, no explicit white supremacy content in the art should exist. And that's like um, when they were ready to admit that they had the Nazi problem. <laughs> but my right. thought is, and and perhaps maybe this is wrong. So just uh, you, yes, I am I, my expert knowledge of uh, <laughs> if you're a grown man that is participating in this culture, <laughs> you're probably like have Nazi sympathy at least. Like you. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I didn't get that sense from here, but I, <laughs> it, it's, well, I, it's there possible. is something that there is a line in it, um, which is, um, what's clearest from talking with those on either yeah. side of the argument is that the My Little Pony fandom has developed a totally nonsensical hodgepodge of values. Many fans who specifically support Black Lives Matter, for example, are also fans of Ariane. Uh, or Ariane, Ariane, a fan-invented Nazi pony with a pink swastika on her hip. They do not oh, so acknowledge <laughs> the contradiction. I love Ariane, a 25-year-old My Little Pony fan named Sam told me. It's just cute, funny, sexy art. Black Lives Matter art is, is great. I welcome it too. So, like, you know. But I'm saying that you, like, you are at least drawn to it even if you ultimately reject like the national so um, <laughs> socialism it is a uh it, it well first of all the uh, most distressing part of that whole quote is that it's sexy mm -hmm. um <laughs> that, that that a my little pony is is sexy at all it reveals something about who these these guys are not that it's um, a nazi my little pony but just that it's a no, pony it's, a, it's just that it's that it's a pony yeah. um uh yeah it it does seem as if they are a very tolerant group uh almost heterodox heterodox if you would yes 
John Height, <laughs> probably the champion. Of- no, no, John. No, sorry, John. I thought that this actually would uh, be. I was like, oh, this might not be fun because it's going to be like a conversation actually about free speech or whatever. But it's so hard to get past the fact that it's a My Little Pony <laughs> website that I underestimated what it's saying out loud, saying yeah. that out loud. Would <laughs> the least surprising thing of it to me was that they were then Nazis. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, some of them posted "I can't breathe" flags, but those must be the, the those must the, be the black. Those ones. got downloaded. <laughs> Thanks to, to hell. <laughs> so I the so I think the thrust of the article is that they ended up instituting some rules against this, but not like outright banning white supremacy, and that's made everybody kind of upset because they're banning some people but not all, and it's like, well, fucking pick a side, which I get. <laughs> it seems half assed There's a great quote on this too. Der Derpiburu's tiny policy change has led to an uproar in the site's forums and disgruntled users insist that it will lead to a quote purity spiral or a slippery slope to quote censorship and authoritarianism. <laughs> this site uh, message board or whatever it is on My Little oh, yeah. Pony is a slippery slope to authority. I'm surprised my stepmother hasn't tweeted about this. Maybe she has. Uh, I mean, she was even if she didn't tweet, I'm sure she was outraged. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but there's a swastika pony. I don't think she's allowed to to to, to defend that at all. Um, <laughs> I, oh, I get what you're saying. I get the quote. <laughs> Dave's anti-Semitism. <laughs> It's become dog whistling. Now. I'm just, I'm just saying your stepmom is not anti-Semitic. <laughs> She's very. Um, I think I texted to you uh, that that this this episode we should talk about something far less controversial than IDW um, and talk about Israel Palestine. <laughs> but no, we're good. So I think there's an interesting question here about um, you know whether or not what the responsibility of this message board is and. I kind of respect so so they they make an allusion to or, or explicit reference to 4chan, which is you know in some ways the armpit of the internet. It's it's a wild wild west. Anything can get posted and it's completely anonymous. I'm this might be an unpopular thing to say, but I I'm okay with that existing. Um, if they're not breaking laws, if they're like if there's no like child porn, you know, it's snuff snuff poor and shit like that like i like that there are places that allow anything to be posted i don't like the things that are posted 4chan i would never even visit most of those boards but um most no I, listeners most, most. <laughs> <laughs> but there but there is something about like this community has to police itself and it's clear that they don't know what to do right and I, I don't know if, if I were the owner of these, this derpy buru, I probably would say, get the fuck out Nazis. Like if it were my house and you came and saying that shit, I would say, get the fuck out. I don't want a racist here. And that to me is, it, it's really hard because you either, I think have to say, look, nothing, you know, it's like, like MMA, like it's going to be no holds barred. But then they had to be like, okay, no eye gouging, you're right, like no biting, like add some rules within reason right. and then just let it be kind of a free-for-all. Or you say there are values in this community and we're going to have a very involved moderation system and and no none of that shit. Or just 
figure out a way to spend your time that doesn't involve um, posting about little ponies. I bet you that there is a uh, whole thread dedicated to brushing cum out of the mane of your My Little Ponies. <laughs> uh, I don't know. What would you do if you were the... if if? I mean, it's like asking me what, what would I do if I was... Like what color pants would you wear if you were a leprechaun? Right, or like, something like that. It's just never going to happen. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> I would never be in that, but like, I, like me as a person, it wouldn't be me anymore. That was mo- like moderating any, <laughs> any like site. I would never moderate like a site. Ever. This is like, like your reaction it. to the veil of ignorance. You're, you're just like, like, look, it's a, it's, it's a meaningless question because it would cease to be you having that opinion. Uh, I wouldn't <laughs> moderate like the Twin Peaks Reddit page, which I love. And I, but just the idea that you're a moderator and you have to put up with all the people bitching at you all the time. Like I'm impressed with them. I, <laughs> okay. Say that it, it is a, um, so so if you're in education, you know that there are these websites called like Blackboard and Canvas where students can post yeah. their assignments. And often there is an ability to for them to post to each other and have an, a discussion about each other's mm-hmm. points, uh, something I think is often done in like a philosophy seminar. And some of them were saying some racist shit. What would you do? Oh, it'll depend on the thing. Like, and it depend on like in what sense it was racist or in what sense, like, and what the dynamic of the class was. I'm a particularist when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, like there are certain classes where, uh, there people can have very honest conversations because everybody knows each other mm-hmm. and everybody is on board. Like in that kind of situation that can work in other kinds of situations it doesn't like, but this is a context that I don't get. So I would just say, everyone go home. I'm shutting down the site and I'm going to move (laughs) on with my life. Yeah, maybe so. But you know, this respecting the diversity of, of opinion includes the My Little Pony fetish sites. <laughs> and I think that what you pointed out to to particularism about this, like which means that you, you can't possibly expect there to be a broad principle that applies and that you treat each case by case, um, balancing the pros and the cons morally. That is, that is the dilemma of the internet because there mm-hmm. isn't enough energy to be a particularist. You have to institute these blanket kinds of principle-driven uh, policies or else it would just take way too long and, eh, you know, I, I don't know. But I think that it's not hard to just say no racist shit on my... It's the dilemma of the internet. It's the dilemma of, like, the law and just running a company, mm-hmm. I think. It is, like, maybe, like, the fundamental dilemma of... Right, like, of modern of life. The human condition. Yeah, I mean, uh, especially in modern life where there's just yeah. so much coming at people that... Yeah, if we lived in a small-scale society and somebody told me that they were put, drawing a lynching thing, I'd just slap the shit out of them and tell them to stop. Anything else about My Little Pony? If, our, if any of our listeners are a member of this uh, community and we offended you in any way, I, I deeply apologize. <laughs> Please don't complain. <laughs> I, I do, too, because you're probably a violent <laughs> Nazi. <laughs> All right. We will be right back to talk about something I think it's healthy to geek out on. Borges. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp. We're proud to have BetterHelp as a return sponsor, especially 
especially in these times where many of us, even the most sane of us, could use something like therapy, except for many of us can't leave our house. BetterHelp is the service that was tailored for you right now. BetterHelp is a service that's available for clients worldwide, and it offers you counselors with a broad range of expertise um, available across many areas. You can get help with depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma or anger, and sleeping. In particular, I need help with my sleeping, even though I'm home all day and the schedule is up to me, I somehow cannot get enough sleep. Anything you share with BetterHelp is confidential. These are professional licensed therapists who you'll connect with in a safe and private online environment. It's the ultimate inconvenience. You can start communicating with them in under 24 hours once you sign up. Remember, it's not self-help. It's professional counseling. You're going to be matched with a professional therapist. If you don't like that professional therapist, they make it very easy to change. So if you don't believe me, you can go to their website and check out the testimonials that many people post daily on their site. And as another piece of data, so many people have been using BetterHelp lately that they're having to recruit additional counselors in all 50 states. So if you want to make a change, if you need help, if you want to start living a healthier, happier life today, as a listener of Very Bad Wizards, you'll get 10% off your first month if you visit betterhelp.com slash VBW. So join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. We'd like to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this time in the podcast, we like to thank all the people who interact with us, reach out to us in all the different ways that you do. We've had a lot of interaction um, after our last episode and especially the first segment. I hope people listened uh, to our discussion on Amiya Srinivasan's essay because I think that was actually a, a good discussion of two really good articles. But yeah, we appreciate it. It's uh, it's a whirlwind sometimes, um, but a lot of people had objections and there were a lot of people who voiced their support on email or on Reddit or on Twitter. So if you would like to participate in the Very Bad Wizards conversation, you can go to uh, our Reddit subreddit, uh, not moderated by us uh, because I would never moderate anything. 
Uh, and um, you can go to our uh, Twitter at Tamler at Peas at Very Bad Wizards. You can email us verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Instagram. And you can uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us on Spotify. And we really appreciate it. Um, sometimes we may complain, but honestly, it's, it's an honor to have this many people care enough to do it it's true and i i never want to be the sort of hypocrite that encourages that kind of critical discussion when it's only feel good for us so yeah thanks and if you want to support us in more tangible ways uh, we really appreciate that um you can find those ways by going to our uh, support page verybadwizards.com slash vbw support um, or you could just find it on verybadwizards.com and link there. You can take that will take you to our Patreon account. We really, really appreciate all our Patreon supporters, and we're doing things uh, to hopefully make it pay off for you. Uh, we what do we have upcoming? We're gonna do definitely gonna do a dark discussion, right? Yes, I am uh, six episodes into the new season, which I love. I absolutely love. And I'm excited to talk about with. Absolutely. Um, I love it too. I'm five episodes in as soon as we're probably going to have to do it as soon as we finish watching, which we're binging right now. So that'll be soon. Uh, we very much appreciate it. Um, you can also support us on PayPal. If you don't have Patreon or you don't like Patreon with a one-time donation or a recurring donation that is also in our support page. We also have wonderful announcement. We have t-shirts. So this was one of the, you know, who who to thunk that ripping on designers would brander, get us <laughs> brander, yeah, yeah, branding people, not designers, would get us uh, an, a cool new design for our t-shirt, which but but we actually do. So Olga Pope, who we mentioned last time, who made artwork for us after that episode was generous and kind enough to pass along that artwork and we have used it for a brand new t-shirt design it is the, it's two chimps looking at each other in the shape of headphones you can easily find our new t-shirt design uh, by going to our website and actually clicking one of the tabs at the top that says merchandise i've put a link directly to our cotton bureau page so we we're using a new service which i'm very excited about because the quality of their t-shirts is great and they don't accept all designs so in fact our old very bad wizards t-shirt i wanted it to be on cotton bureau because i love their t-shirts but they rejected it um, but this one got in and so so we are we're excited about it there are a few different uh, styles and there's also a sweatshirt and a hoodie so please go if you love it if you love the design as much as we do, go buy a bunch, buy them as gifts, whatever. We, we very much appreciate it. I just ordered a couple. I know. I ordered a bunch just for friends just because I want them to go around representing. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. And it's not like that obvious that it's very bad wizards, but it will be. It's very hipstery. You yeah. know, I've... <laughs> I know. I like that. Yeah. I think I'm glad about that. Yeah, me too. And I like their, uh, like I actually am looking at a couple other shirts on that site that I will think about ordering yeah they're great a couple of podcasts that i listen to uh use them and um the quality of the shirts just is great and the quality of the service is great last thing tamler and i mentioned last time that we are doing a 
miniseries, if you can call that for podcasts, on the Brothers Karamazov. This will be on a service called Lyceum. Um, and we are... In Himalaya. Himalaya. I don't know what to do about that because the service will still be... Lyceum. Yeah. Lyceum. Um, uh, Lyceum and Himalaya. It's a company that puts out content, just custom content by creators. Uh, we're really excited about it. We're going to do five episodes on the Brothers Karamazov. And we are going to release the first episode for everybody as a part of the regular uh, Very Bad Wizards podcast. And in fact, if you're a Patreon uh, supporter at $5 and above, you will get access to that miniseries for free as well. You get a special code. One of our listeners asked us to say which version of uh, which translation we're using. So we can say that now we're, we're going to be reading... Uh, the translation by Richard Pevier, P-E-V-E-A-R, and Larissa Volokonsky. So if you care enough to to follow the exact words <laughs> that we're reading, uh, you can get that. I'll put a link to that, to the Amazon page for that. Yeah, I'm excited about it. And for people who want to follow along with us, our plan is to do it um, one episode on each part and then the final episode on the epilogue and the whole book. So if you want to just sort of read along with us and then listen to our podcast as we are um, discussing just that part. And I think, you know, we're not going to read ahead so when we discuss right. it. So it'll be like, even though both of us have read it before, I don't have a great memory of all the aspects I of don't it. Either. So yeah. um, it'll be like we're all reading it for the first time. So I'm very excited about that. And um, I hope you guys are too. Uh, it will cost a little money, but not, but just, uh, it'll just be $5 for the whole series. Yeah. As you said, uh, that, that we've read it before, but we have very little memory for it. In fact, I am trying to recreate the entire book, um, myself that, that gets us into the, <laughs> into the Borja section, but let's wrap up and say, thank you everybody for all of your support. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We're very grateful. So now let's turn to something a lot of people have asked us to do more of um, short stories by Jorge Luis Borges. And the, the story that we're going to talk about today is called Pierre Menard, author of Quixote. It was first published in 1939. Um, it is definitely the funniest of Borges's stories that we've read by a wide margin. Um, it's a hilarious story. And I think that is something that seems to get overlooked because of the various movements in postmodernism and philosophy of art that have been inspired by it. The narrator is kind of an insufferably pompous literary critic, maybe, or admirer of a fictional French writer, poet, philosopher, Pierre Menard. The narrator refers to Pierre Menard in the opening sentence as a novelist, although when you look at his list of published works, it doesn't seem to include any novels. But according to the narrator, he did embark on one novel, but he only finished two chapters and destroyed them before his death. The novel he was working on was Don Quixote, not an updated version of Cervantes' Don Quixote, but a word-by-word -word recreation of Cervantes' novel. He was actually trying to write the same text. 
The, the narrator describes this project in glowing terms and consi- considers the three chapters of Menard's Don Quixote to be infinitely richer than the original. From a brief survey of some secondary literature, it seems like almost everyone focuses on the philosophy and literary criticism aspects of this fictional project, but the, the, it is first and foremost a short story. So, Dave, what did you think of this? And I'm going to say it. I'm going to use a term I hate. But what did you think of it qua short story? Qua, Tamler. I never thought. I can't believe I just said qua. I never thought in all the years of podcasting (laughs) that you would actually uh, stoop to saying uh, qua. I I mean, I loved it as as a, a story. And there's no real plot to it. Other than, the, I guess, the aspect that the narrator is saying, Pierre Menard died, and this person had the gall of publishing what they called his complete bibliography of works, and not including his masterpiece. And that structure, that of, of defending Pierre Menard um, from this posthumous attack, um, I think adds richness to to just the mere facts that that the narrator goes on to explain because he's saying it with this tone of defending what a wonderful work it was you know he's defending his friend who's dead even though he destroyed it and there's no evidence of its existence beyond this testimony from this narrator right is the final copy destroyed or is it just all of the all of the copies that led up to it no, I think everything is destroyed. Like, we have to take his word for it that he was even doing this in a serious way. That I guess he quotes letters from Pierre Menard that talked about it. Well, what's, what's hilarious is that, um, that he, might, he, he might actually just say, well, of course it exists. Just pick up a copy of Don Quixote. <laughs> Well, let's, yeah, we should talk about that. Can we read the opening paragraph? Yeah, I was going to say, he calls it a palimpsest in which there should appear traces of the previous handwriting. So I assume that he had in his, in his possession when he went through his stuff that there was a final version. I want to read the opening paragraph because to me, it screams unreliable narrator from the start. (laughs) The visible of left by this novelist, again, he's, a no- he's calling him a novelist, uh, can be easily and briefly enumerated. Unpardonable, therefore, are the omissions, omissions and additions perpetrated by Madame Henri Bachelier in a deceitful catalog that a certain newspaper whose Protestant leanings are surely no secret has been so inconsiderate as to inflict upon that newspaper's deplorable readers. Few and Calvinist, if not Masonic and circumcised, though they may be. So he's just (laughs) criticizing this newspaper and this, like, rote obituary or something that this woman did about this writer, not a a novelist, because he never wrote any novels. Menard's true friends have greeted that catalog with alarm, and even with a degree of sadness. One might note that only yesterday were we gathered before his marmorial place of rest among the dreary cypresses, and already... Error, capital E, is attempting to tarnish his bright memory, capital M. Most decidedly, a brief rectification is imperative. So first of all, like just the the pomposity of this guy and 
the way he describes the newspaper's readers, few and Calvinist, if not Masonic and uh, circumcised. <laughs> Masons, Protestants, and Jews. Yeah, like, exactly. He's, he's, he's putting the Catholic flag down. Because he's French. Uh, he's from the south of France. So I don't know. Like I read that and I think unreliable narrator. This reminded me from the get-go of uh, Nabokov's Pale Fire and the unreliable narrator or actually like commentator that's part of that um, novel and so like I think you have to take everything that follows here with a grain of salt and and how you take it with a grain of salt is a really interesting question but one thing that like I noticed in the secondary literature that at least I took a look at is they barely do that. They barely acknowledge that this isn't just Borges writing it, you know, as if he's the narrator. Right. Well, let's talk. Can we talk a little bit about why are you so convinced that this paragraph sets him up as an unreliable narrator? He's certainly emotional and upset, um, but why unreliable? So if you combine this within the list that he says that the narrator says uh, are his body of work, Menard's body of work, you see, first of all, that there's no novels in there, and he calls him a novelist. Uh, I see. So I, I took him calling him a novelist as uh, when you include the Quixote in there, that's why he's a novelist. So that is part of the claim that my, my friend was a novelist. But that's the unreliable aspect of it, because even if he did what the narrator says he did, it was mm-hmm. too... Uh, three fragments of a chapter of a book that's already been a novel that's already been written that he never published. So calling (laughs) him a novelist, he clearly has an agenda here. Right. And then, you know, what he says about the readers and the and just his style, which is throughout the story, right, of of the like you could take it as a gentle satire of like a literary admirer or something like that, a literary friend. Right. But yeah, let, I'll, I'll table that until we get to some of the funnier passages that that we get to when he actually comments on the project. Right. And just just to say, I don't disagree that he's a completely unreliable narrator. I just think that that became clear to me as I read it, not necessarily. With, like, I took it that he was just trying to big up his friend as a novelist. And it, when you look through his list of published works, it, it feels like satire. It feels like satire that the author or the narrator isn't aware is satire. Like when he's one of his works is a technical article on the possibility of enriching the game of chess by eliminating one of the rook's pawns. Menard proposes, recommends, debates, and then finally rejects this innovation. I love that. That's that was the that was the part where I think I texted you. I was like, this shit is funny. That is the most useless kind of author uh, of uh, of authorship that you could imagine. He recommends it and then rejects. And then rejects. But then rejects. And that's it. a theme, right? For <laughs> like he also has a diatribe against Paul Valéry in Jacques Reboul's Feuille pour la suppression de la réalité, which diatribe I might add parenthetically states the exact reverse of Menard's true opinion of Valéry. <laughs> Valéry understood this and the two men's friendship was never in peril. Um, right. And I suppose he could have been like this, but just the idea that this, you know, he, the way he's uh, describing his brilliance and his particular genius just strikes me more like a sycophant. 
fant who misunderstood the person he loves than somebody who's accurately describing them. It, it, it's interesting because he goes into such detail about the what he says are the works of his friend, and it includes things that are obviously never never published. So it's it's un, like I don't know how he's coming up with this list, um, and I don't know why. <laughs> well, he says. This is the this is the complete list. This is the true complete list. Well, yeah, that's visible. Uh, and maybe the the woman who in the Calvinist Masonic Jew newspaper, <laughs> maybe she didn't even include all of these. Right. But then, right, right. And then it's a and it's a lead into. But there's something that you don't even know that he did, which is his masterpiece, his Don Quixote. And we will talk about all the philosophical and literary kind of implications of that project but i think it has to be understood in the backdrop of this guy who's just i don't know he's a bullshitter he's a bullshitter like he sounds like a bullshitter without necessarily knowing that he's a bullshitter like he might believe this stuff he might be taken in by his own bullshit but it but it reads like that to me also though in support of of your point of maybe the narrator having been taken in perhaps by the bullshit of Pierre Menard. Um, the first footnote and yours, your, my translation is different. It was always, um, the first footnote is at the end of that list. And he says, Madame Henri Bachelier also lists a literal translation of a literal translation done by Quevedo of the introduction a la vie devotee of St. Francis of Sales. In Pierre Menard's library, there are no such, there are no traces of such a work. She must have misunderstood a remark of his, which he had intended as a joke. And that is like, well, right. maybe you did. That's right? what I think is like, there might be a Pierre Menard who actually was like a real thinker and poet and philosopher, but like he didn't understand what he was doing and may have taken this whole idea of rewriting Don Quixote, which his his friend or this author said as a joke, he may have thought. <laughs> he may have, I I now I kind of now in the context of what you were saying and that footnote, I think that what he's saying is most likely what Borges is saying about this narrator is probably Pierre Menard told you this story about how he's doing the Quixote as a joke, and now now you've taken it as a work of genius, right? So I think we've mentioned, right, he is going to rewrite word for word Don Quixote by Cervantes. Yeah. Um, a great book. Have you read that, by the way? Hell no. I tried to read it in Spanish, which was my mistake, um, and and then never read it. Because I, I thought, like, out of pride that I should read it in Spanish. Right. Uh, because I can. Like, how could you? You know, it's like reading Shakespeare in German or something. <laughs> it also, it's great. It's also very funny, and it also has metafictional aspects to it. Like the whole part two comments on the fact that part one was found and published. And and so I think it's a really good text for Borges to use for something like this. Yeah, for like I'm sure many of our listeners are actually much more well read than I am. But for anybody who, who doesn't know, Don Quixote is to the Spanish world um, the most important book. It is as if William Shakespeare had published one major play um, that was very, very long. 
and um, and we elevated that single work as the forefather of all literature to to follow. That's how much uh, Cervantes is. So this is a context of saying like this guy is claiming that he rewrote the most important book of in Spanish historically. <laughs> Not only that, he seems to have thought very little of the work compared to everybody else. He was kind of indifferent to it. Now, he only said that he wrote three chapters, though, not the whole right, right. Two and a half, right? Two, and Two and complete half. chapters yeah. and half of it one. Yeah, which is a great, that's just a great detail. I love, I love that, that's, that that's in there because um, as Menard himself says, you would have to be immortal to co- have completed it. And, and it's not that Menard was copying it word for word. He wasn't doing that. But it's also not that he hadn't read it. He had. And actually, we should read it. There's a funny paragraph about the first part. He says, those who have insinuated that Menard devoted his life to writing a contemporary Quixote besmirch his illustrious memory. Pierre Menard did not want to compose another Quixote, which is surely easy enough. He wanted to compose the Quixote, nor surely need one be obliged to note that his goal was never a mechanical transcription of the original. He had no intention of copying it. His admirable ambition was to produce a number of pages which coincided word for word and line for line with those of Miguel de Cervantes. <laughs> I love it. I just love it. This is this brings me joy uh, for some reason that this premise that you could, he's not copying. Nope. And he's not, he goes on to say, he's not doing that bullshit thing of like making, or he said this before, of making like a, oh, like a new Quixote, like in modern times, like people tend to do, like he's not making 1920s Paris. Yeah. He's not making Christ on a Boulevard, Hamlet on the Canabier and Don Quixote on Wall Street. That would be plebeian and, uh, and below him, he is going about rewriting right as if it were as if it emanated from him the quixote and he, so then he goes on to say like how did he do this well he he first thought to do it by just reliving the life of cervantes so he says the initial method he conceived was re- relatively simple to know spanish well to re-embrace the catholic faith to fight against moors and turks to forget European history between 1602 and 1918, and to be Miguel de Cervantes. But he, he rejects this as too easy. And now he's French, right? He doesn't know Spanish. So in my translation, he says, learn Spanish. And in that the Spanish of Cervantes is, um, in men, like the original Spanish, is pre, like pretty incomprehensible to even Spanish, modern Spanish speakers. It's, it's more similar to Portuguese in many ways than, than it is even to Spanish. So, so he tried that, like the, the way that would be obvious, which is let me become Quixote and write, write this as Quixote. I mean, as Cervantes. Let me become Cervantes and write it as Cervantes. But he doesn't do that. Um, in, in fact, the method that he chooses is a little nebulous. Yeah, he, sa- he said being somehow Cervantes and arriving thereby at the Quixote, that looked to Menard less challenging and therefore less interesting than continuing to be Pierre Menard and coming to the Quixote through the experiences of Pierre Menard. Yeah, let's unpack that. 
Right. So, so, so because of that, there's one part of the book that he couldn't write, which is the part, the, the autobiographical prologue of the second part of Don Quixote, because then he would have to write it as Cervantes and he wasn't trying to be Cervantes. So that part was, was uh, not available to him, to his, to his uh, undertaking. And, and again, that part, if I'm remembering right, is also kind of metafictional. It's oh, yeah. it's uh, Cervantes playing the role of Cervantes, not like real Cervantes. So, but he couldn't do that because he's not Cervantes. And so, <laughs> um, yeah. So he said, "I my undertaking is not essentially difficult." I read in another part of the same letter that the narrator is telling us, quoting the letter. I would only have to be immortal in order to carry out. Again, the most pompous, the, Pierre Menard sounded like he was either so full of himself or just really pulling the leg of, of the, the narrator, right? Right. You could see him having the, these friends, these other like French pretentious fucks <laughs> and like playing a practical joke on this sycophantic like admirer that this is what he was going to do. <laughs> right. And like the practical joke now outlives him, you know, because he the the guy produces this uh, this piece where he took this it beautiful entirely seriously. But then they would be in he would be in good company with, I think, a lot of people like Roland Roland Barthes. The uh, postmodernist called this a postmodernist manifesto, this story. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I think a lot of people have taken Borges seriously. And I'm not saying it doesn't raise a lot of the interesting philosophical questions that they say it raises, but it's definitely not a manifesto. It's not arguing for a specific view of how you should read text or write text or interpret text or anything like that. Right. Now I'm I'm certainly no no expert to say this, but I would put money on that these people got taken in the way that the narrator got taken in by Pierre Menard. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> like, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so um, but let's talk about like let's take it at face value just for the sake of talking about it and think what does that mean to write Don Quixote as somebody who lives like 300 years later in a totally different country and a totally different language without copying. Right. Um, and to come at it genuinely, I think, that way. There's a kind of absurdity to it. It's not realistically possible to do that without just copying it. But what does it, like, what is it alluding to even, the the idea of it? The, the, production, again, the emanation of a work in a completely different context. So his method, he says, is even harder than what Quixote had to do. Because Cervantes. for Quixote, he could just, I mean, God damn it, Cervantes. For him, Cervantes just sort of was could stumble through and work, uh, so he says, a little a la diable, um, uh, kind of half-acidly produce the entire work emanating from him. But for Menard, he has to do something entirely different, which is be Menard, be in this context, in this time period, and this person, and have it come out of him. And that, on the face of it, to me, sounds obvious, like impossible. So I don't know. I don't know what, what it means. He says this is a letter that is supposedly from Menard to the narrator. This game of solitary I play is governed by two polar rules. 
The first allows me to try out formal or psychological variants of, I, I take it, the original text. The second forces me to sacrifice them to the quote-unquote original text and to come by irrefutable arguments to those eradications. Again, if we take this at face value, he is saying that, you know, as a French person living in uh, the south of France in the 30s and 20s or whenever this is supposed to have taken place, I first try out, like, how would I write the text? But then I have to necessarily, through irrefutable arguments, come to eradicate those psychological variants of Don Quixote back to the original. It's like he's giving himself some sort of, I don't know, a test of his logical and lexical kind of capacities so that it just is, it comes out of him necessarily as this is the text that he's writing that happens to also be the exact uh, replica of Cervantes' text. And the, the, the trippy thing is that, you know, he, he specifies that he must have read Don Quixote when he was a kid. I mean, he did, but he, he's forgotten it. And he didn't go back and read it in order to do this. Yeah, he said, uh, since then, I have read, reread several chapters attentively, but not the ones I'm going to undertake. So he, he on purpose, did not read the chapters that he was going to try to recreate. But he studied all of the others. He says, I've likewise studied the Entremeses, the comedies, the Galatea, the exemplary novels, and the undoubtedly laborious efforts of Persites, Isigismunda, and, and the Viaje al Parnaso. So he read all of the other stuff like that, that Cervantes wrote in order to sort of get be able to get in his mind, but not the chapters that, that he's recreating. And when he's doing this process that you were describing of <laughs> writing something and then scratching it, it's it's crazy because he's it's not like he's checking the accuracy against something and then scratching it out, right? He has no idea. How does he know that there are formal and psychological variants, right? Right. He doesn't. <laughs> so this is, again, like unreliable narrator aspect of this, I think, comes out maybe there as well. It's not possible even in the letter of him describing it. So either he's a lunatic or... Right, so Menard being the unreliable one in this case, is that what you're saying? Yeah, but unreliable to the point of being unreliable in the head. You know, like, (laughs) if what he says is true, it doesn't seem consistent. There's no conceptual... Yeah, there's no way that you could do that. Like, what are you going to... And so they describe... He describes... uh, The narrator describes... Uh, what does he say? Hundreds, if not thousands, I think, of drafts that he had to go through before getting to the final, you know, chapter 36 or whatever. Um, but just, by the way, none of them exist. <laughs> like he destroyed them all. <laughs> exactly. So he says, my purpose is merely astonishing. He wrote me on September 30th, 1934 from Bayonne. The final term of a theological or metaphysical proof, the world around us or God or chance or universal forms is no more final, no more uncommon than my revealed novel. The sole difference is that philosophers publish pleasant volumes containing the intermediate stages of their work while I am resolved to suppress those stages of my of my own. And indeed, there is not a single draft to bear witness to that year's long labor. 
So he's saying that he's comparing it to like uh, a final like arriving at the forms or a metaphysical truth of the necessity of God. So there is something about like the necessary that is occupying him about this. The fact that this could issue from him almost like a like a logical inference or some sort of proof. It's it's almost like a proof the way he 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 he's he's conceiving of it again according to the narrator. I'll stop saying that, but I think we always have to <laughs> right. keep that in mind. I couldn't help but think of the culture of sampling, <laughs> which we can get to um, about this. But there are people who recreate uh, entire beats in hip hop. They go to the original sample and they try to get their original drums and they recreate the entire thing. Is it their beat? I don't know. Well, this is the thing that has fired up in the philosophy of art, the metaphysics of art and stuff like that. But there is a kind of interesting question that I think Borges wants us to ask that is raised by this. And again, it's presented still in this satirical way, but it's this idea of if you read it in the context of this being Cervantes who wrote it, or you read it in the context of it being Menard who, who, who wrote it, you will, you may interpret it differently and you may find one to be more interesting or raise a whole new set of questions or themes. Yeah, this is clearly the central interesting aspect of this, where um, when he is considering the chapters, he says, the text of Cervantes and that of Menard are verbally identical, but the second is almost infinitely richer. More ambiguous, his detractors will say, <laughs> but ambiguity is a richness. So he's already imagining that the detractors are like reading, <laughs> reading Menard's version, but of course they're identical. So he says, in spite of these three obstacles, when he's talking about the obstacles to having written uh, the, the Quixote, in spite of these three obstacles, the fragmentary Don Quixote of Menard is more subtle than that of Cervantes. <laughs> The latter, the latter indulges in a rather coarse opposition between tales of knighthood and the meager provincial reality of his country. Menard chooses as reality the land of Carmen during the century of Lepanto and Lope. So he's just saying, like, the same decisions that Cervantes made uh, for his story are completely different decisions and more brilliant ones that, that Menard made for his story. Cervantes is just talking, like comparing like norms of chivalry in his <laughs> yeah. own time, pretty much, or in a previous, like just previous to when he lived. And, and whereas this French author <laughs> in the 20th century is doing that, uh, what burlesque brushstrokes of local color. This is such a postmodernist wet dream. Yeah. Like this is, of course, of course they love this. He says, it is a matter of common knowledge that in, in that chapter, chapter 38, Don Quixote comes down against letters, against like literature in favor of arms. Cervantes was an old soldier. For him, from him, the verdict is understandable. But that Pierre Menard's Don Quixote, a contemporary of La Trahison des Clercs <laughs> and Bertrand Russell, should repeat these cloudy sophistries. The complex context and psychology in which Menard produces this is what needs to be understood when you read a sentence like him, him favoring arms over letters. But but it is an interesting question, right? It is different. Like setting aside the the you know the grandiosity of the prose in this, like it, you know, it is different to read this if uh, a French <laughs> yeah. person wrote it in the in the thirties, the nineteen thirties, than it would be to know that 
uh, Cervantes wrote it in whatever the 17th century. So like it absolutely is. Like I, I I'm I'm totally on board with with that idea. It's s- such an interesting way to propose this question, right? Um, should we go on to that the money shot? Yeah. Okay. The money shot. Go. This is so, so funny. Yeah. So he continues to say. The text of Cervantes and that of Menard are verbally identical, but the second is almost infinitely richer. More ambiguous, his detractors will say, but ambiguity is a richness. It is a revelation to compare the Don Quixote of Menard with that of Cervantes. And then he says, should I read it in Spanish? We have to read it in English for our non-Spanish speaking listeners. But. <laughs> right. So the latter, for instance, wrote, so he said, he's quoting Cervantes's version, La verdad cuya madre es la historia, ímula del tiempo, depósito de las acciones, testigo de lo pasado, ejemplo y aviso de lo presente, advertencia de lo porvenir. So he write, I'm saying it in Spanish because he wrote it in Spanish, but the translation is truth, whose mother is history, who is the rival of time, depository of deeds, witness of the past, example and lesson to the present, and warning to the future. And so he says, written in the 17th century, written by the ingenious layman Cervantes, this enumeration is a mere rhetorical eulogy of history. Menard, on the other hand, writes, and then he, he just writes the exact same passage, which I don't need to read twice. And then he says, history, mother of truth. The idea is astounding. Menard, a contemporary of William James, does not define history as an investigation of reality, but as its origin. Historical truth for him is not what took place. It is what we think took place. The final clauses, example and lesson to the present and warning to the future, are shamelessly pragmatic. So he's, he's reading a whole world of philosophy into the exact same phrase, the exact same paragraph. And very dismissively of yeah, Cervantes it's shit. writing it. It's shit. Uh, the quote unquote ingenious layman, Miguel Cervantes, uh, it's just a rhetorical praise of history, which it clearly isn't. <laughs> no. I mean, Don Quixote itself is a, uh, is a comic novel, right? It's a comic text. And and then, but history, <laughs> the mother of truth in my translation. The idea is staggering. Like he is a contemporary of William James. And I, yeah, I love the final phrases, exemplar and advisor to the president and the futurist counselor are brazenly pragmatic. He's discovered his prag- the pragmatist uh, philosophical leanings of his friend by reading his text. Yeah, I mean, so it is different to write that passage in the context of, you know, the the philosophical and literary movements of your time rather than, you know, 300 years before anybody would talk about like <laughs> right. pragmatism as a as a movement, right? Absolutely. So that's why that's why, you know, he was he was rejecting the method of trying to become 17th century Cervantes. He rather created this was the genius move. He recreated the text as Pierre Menard. And coming from him, those words not only sound different, but they probably mean something different. Although they don't mean what he says they mean. Oh, no, no. He's, he's engaging in like a like super sycophantic like analysis of, of the text. There's nothing brazenly pra- pragmatic about saying, or history is exemplar and advisor to the present and the future's uh, counselor, that he's not taking sides in, you know, the pragmatist versus realist debate, <laughs> right. there, even if this, he, this came out of him for the first time. 
Um, so it does show a kind of misunderstanding of what novelists are doing, I think, throughout. But it, I still agree with you that it does mean something different. Right. What it means might, yeah, what it means. Like, but to put the meaning, what that meaning is in the hands of the narrator is, is dangerous. And that's the move, the, the move that takes you from saying we have to understand text in its context and we have to derive the meaning based on, uh, you know, what, what we think the author's context was gives a subjectivity to any text that now places the ability to interpret it in the hands of the interpreter, right? And he really wants, I think the narrator really wants to believe that this is a clear, a clear passage that, dis- that is uh, revealing uh, Menard's pragmatism. Like he believes it and, and he thinks that, that that is the right interpretation given what he knows of Menard. Or he's saying it because he rejects it. Mm-hmm. And that was a habit of his. So it could be the thing and it's opposite. Yeah, it could be the thing or it's opposite. <laughs> In that sense, it's it's a, like almost a literal reductio ad absurdum <laughs> of like, like literary interpretation of this style, you know, because you can't ever know whether it's like this or the opposite. So this raises a ton of interesting questions about how much to take both the author, the author's intentions... And at least something I have more sympathy with, just to know something about the context in which it was written is going to help determine how you understand the meaning of the text. It is funny, though, that he gives, like you said, he puts it in the hands of someone who's so ill-equipped to do this well, regardless of whether this thing exists. One of the funny parts too is when he says that even though Menard only wrote two and a half chapters, it's impossible not to, when reading the other chapters, not to hear his style coming through. (laughs) So now he has the ability to reinterpret all of Don Quixote if, if what he's doing is reading it in the voice of Pierre Menard or, you know, as, as coming from Pierre Menard. So the question of whether this is a valid way of interpreting text is an interesting one. I, it's, it's interesting that, for instance, we say when we discuss something, we don't usually take into account the context that Borges was writing it in. We do a little bit. A little bit, yeah. A little bit, but, but they usually stand on their own, right? We, we treat the text as text that we interpret only within the text, um, or at least mostly. Yeah, and I think partly it's because of the kind of writer he is where I think those texts are meant to. I think the one exception might have been Talan Ukbar. Right, 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 right. I think we we certainly brought into it the war and also like the movements of idealism that he might have some opinions on. But I think we respect the text and respect like the art of literature enough not to, you know, impute any specific agenda. But like for the Brothers Karamazov, when we do that, I think it will be hard because the text itself is so situated in some of these Russian movements at the time. It will be hard not to just acknowledge that, you know, that Dostoevsky is writing in those, in that context and maybe a little bit of his personal biography, maybe not too much. I don't have like a settled view on how much of that to take into account. Sometimes I think people do it too much. Sometimes I think people do it too little. Absolutely. And um, 
I'm not sure what the narrator actually thinks and what Borges thinks that we should do, but he does take this to its complete conclusion, right? So he says that this method that Menard came up with, uh, so he says, Menard, perhaps without wishing to, has enriched by means of a new technique the hesitant and rudimentary art of reading. The technique is one of deliberate anachronism and erroneous attribution. This technique, with its infinite applications, urges us to run through the Odyssey as if it were written after the Enid. Is that how you pronounce the Enid? Aeneid. And to read Le Jardin du Centaur by Madame Henri Bachelier. You like my pretentious yeah, pronunciation? Yeah, very good. As if it, <laughs> this is one of the funniest lines. And to, to read the Le, Jean, Le Jardin du Centaur by Madame Henri Bachelier, as if it were written by Madame Henri Bachelier. <laughs> this technique would fill the dullest books with adventure. Would not attributing of the imitation of Christ to Louis, Fernand, Céline, or James Joyce be a sufficient renovation of its tenuous spiritual counsels? I have faint spiritual admonitions, yeah. Right. But if you assume that one author wrote a different book and you play that game, so it doesn't have to be that he actually wrote it. I could just, you know, I could read Crime and Punishment and think, what if Tamler Summers actually wrote Crime and Punishment? And that gives me a whole new astonishing, astonishing. <laughs> staggering genius. That would give me a whole new way of looking at Crime and Punishment. And the context in which Tamler Summers was raised would influence every interpretation of, of that text. I think that what Borges is pointing out as he's having the narrator like go through this conclusion that like, oh, with this new technique, we could read something as if it were written by somebody else. And that unlocks a whole new set of meanings to the text. That's a dangerous game to play because once you do that, then the possibility of reading different meanings into every single text exists. And you can almost do what, what they were alluding to before is believe the thing and its opposite, depending on who you're thinking wrote it. And I think, much like the Library of Babel, this will create infinite sets of meanings, and we will never be able to figure out which meaning is the right one. Is that a bad thing when it comes to literature? Um, like, is it a bad thing not to know what the author's... Yeah, what the quote-unquote real meaning was? Yeah, I mean, one of the endlessly fascinating things about Plato, for me... Uh, is that we don't actually really know what he believes um, because they're dialogues and he didn't put himself in any of the dialogues. But those are philosophers. Like with, with literature, I don't want to know what Ursula Le Guin thinks about utilitarianism. They're, you know, the, the literary art to me is raising questions and giving a kind of um, a template for us to... I don't know, to think about things, not answers or resolutions. And so, so I mean, I think it's not a bad thing to not know what the author meant in one sense. I, on the other hand, I totally agree with you that the way he's talking about it, it would become completely meaningless because you can import anything onto the text, right? Like, right. So like at least there's a constraint, there's some constraint and uh, hermeneutical constraint, I guess, when it comes to assuming that the author who, who wrote it, wrote it. Um, and knowing that and knowing the time period, maybe that they wrote it. But without that, 
and, and just with the ability to imagine that anybody wrote it, yeah, it does become Library of Babley. That's a good analogy. And the thing is, the narrator of this story the, is not coming down on the side that this is bad. Um, he's clearly championing this way of, of interpreting text. But what's interesting is to me that you can't, there's, there's a way in which it's impossible to read a text without having some context, without bringing something to the table. So we are, we know something about Ian McEwan. We know something about Tambler Summers when we start reading this and we can't help but bring that to bear. We know something about the time period in which it was written and the meaning of words in that time period, right? So we might go look up words that Shakespeare wrote. What did this word mean when Shakespeare wrote it versus what does it mean now? Um, we, we're doing that as part of taking in any text. The question is, how far can you go in changing the truth of the text? Or I mean, truth isn't the right word, but you know what I mean? Yeah, how far can you go in terms of the elasticity or flexibility of how you understand? And I think you can go pretty far. I mean, one of the things that I love about teaching the Iliad and the Odyssey every two years is, you know, I come at it from a different perspective in my life sometimes. You know, I started doing this like 12 years ago and my daughter was four and I had a whole different set of beliefs and values and, you know, it's not maybe not whole, radically different, but, you know, you come at it from your own perspective in a different way. And Homer is a really interesting case where we don't know much about the, like, we don't even know when that text was written within 500 years. And we don't know anything about the person, even though these are probably the two great, you know, two of the five greatest masterpieces of Western literature. It's like, uh, but at the same time, you know, something, if you didn't know, if you if you came at it with no context. Even the language, right? Yeah. Yeah, even the language. And even if you, like, it would be very different if you thought it was written in the 18th century or the 20th century versus just knowing that it was written pre-write, you know, like oral tradition, uh, definitely before 700 BC, you know. <sighs> you know, this is, this is kind of like going back to your particularism. You want to say that for each text... We can, there, there are boundaries by which we can interpret, but those boundaries are kind of flexible. And depending on the work, like if a work of poetry might mean something different, or take you and I reading Ecclesiastes and Job in our 40s, you know, like as this, this part of our life, we can't help but read into it. I don't think, and I don't think that it's possible to consider that things have meaning without the reader reading into it. It's just that this this is exactly the part of postmodernism that goes too far, if if postmodernism is even a thing. But that part where you say, well, it just right. So I resist people saying Huck Finn is a racist book because Huck Finn lives in that time period and it should be judged by the culture of that time period. And I don't want to, I don't want to impute my values onto that time period. I want to be able to read that text without being outraged at, at all of the language, like the use of the N-word. Whereas if a novelist did that right now. Yeah. Like if a white person had, wrote a book where there was just filled with a bunch of N-words, you'd be like, why are you doing that? Like, that's not right. But, but I resist, I want to keep it within the confines of the meaning 
um, you know, surrounding that author in that time period. But where, where do you stop? I'm not sure. I, I think it, yeah, I don't think there's general principles. I mean, I think one of the things the postmodernists did was they took an extreme stance on it, on this. The text is just the text, and that's, that seems too far for a lot of the reasons that you've said. On the other hand, um, reading too much into it, there is a kind of way that I think some religious, religious studies people, what are they called? Um, Theologians? theologians, I guess. But yeah, they they will come at something like Ecclesiastes or Genesis as like power struggles between various tribes, like they will reduce it to some sort of political or yeah, philosophical message that is, is trying to be expressed. And that to me is antithetical to like what art is, is, is trying to do. So I, I probably... I probably have more of an aversion to that, like the reductive approach than I do to the... Like, that someone could tell us that we were wrong about Ecclesiastes. Like they would say like, no, you guys, like even though you understood the words, what you need to realize that this this person writing it probably was responding to that political movement that was going on. I would be like, fuck you. Like this person is writing poetry and that poetry is emotional and timeless. <laughs> and again, we don't, and that's another text where we don't know, like, we don't have a really good idea when it was written or the context that it was would have written in. And that's kind of uh, a really interesting aspect of it. It's also interesting that, like, you read it when you were a strong believer, and now you're reading it as an atheist. And those are two different ways of understanding it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, so that... <laughs> That's a deeply interesting question. We would be out. We would be out of a podcast job probably if we adhered to the strictest way of interpreting a text, right? Because we are even in our reading of Borges, we are reading as much as we possibly are squeezing as much meaning as we possibly can out of it, and that means sometimes probably interpreting things in a way that Borges would not have interpreted it. Um, but I'm okay with that. Like I, I don't like the thought. That, um, like, I don't like listening to musical artists tell me what their song means. I just don't like it, takes something away from it. And sometimes I think, well, no, you're just wrong. <laughs> I reserve the right to say that they're wrong about what their song means, which I think is totally fair sometimes, you know, like sometimes I think that postmodernist kind of point that sometimes the author's text is more meaningful than the author might recognize, you know, and, and that it's actually a tribute to the author if they can do that, you know, and I think that's what people are, are trying to do. There's a great David Lynch quote that I've probably said on this podcast, but closure is just an excuse to forget that you saw the damn thing or read the damn thing yeah. or, and, and, you know, he's somebody very conscious about not giving his interpretation or his, so that we can do it, you know, and so that we can take what our, you know, and it becomes an active process reading. And that's a good way of putting it. That's it. It is it, all, all reading is an active process. And that's what he, the, the narrator of this is, I think, trying to champion. He says, if that's how you approach reading, then it becomes this wonderful, you know, this wonderful endeavor. Whereas before you might've read it and been bored by it. Um, now you read it with this new lens, a new way of appreciating it. So, so it might be fun to just read the Odyssey and think, you know, what if David Lynch had written it <laughs> or whatever, you know? 
or it was written, yeah, like his example, written after the Aeneid. Um, and he's also right that even though I think <laughs> he says some, you know, totally unacceptable things about Don Quixote, which I love, <laughs> he does say that, you know, there is a kind of fustiness to the way some people talk about it that drains it of the fun that the text has. And as he says, the Quixote Menard remarked was first and foremost, a pleasant book. It is, is now an occasion for patriotic toasts, grammatical arrogance, obscene deluxe editions. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> Fame is a form, perhaps the worst form of incomprehension. So once a text does become celebrated, I think Shakespeare is like this in a lot of ways. Like if we revere it too much, you know, if we know what to think about it, then it loses a bit of its mystery and its magic. And, and the, it's life, like it's life. And it's life, yeah, it's vitality, absolutely. You know, this is this slightly different uh, point, but if you'll allow me, um, this, this story made me think of uh, this example in hip-hop. So there is, uh, Jay Dilla is a producer who is dead, but was ri- widely regarded as one of the greatest, if not the greatest producer um, out there. He had this um, amazing ability to do things that even now no people have been able to do. And one of the stories about him is that he he idolized this producer named Pete Rock. And Pete Rock in the early 90s put out an album called Mecca and the Soul Brother. It was Pete Rock and C.L. Smooth. And the way that Jay Dilla revered him um, he he thought that it would be good practice for him to remake the entire album, all of the beats on that album, not the rapping, just the beats. So he spent hours and hours, you know, in his basement, remaking every single beat, finding the original samples, trying to get the drums to sound exactly right. And he finished it. And the person he was telling this story to is Questlove from The Roots. Questlove was like, this is incredible. You You know, you should do something with it. And he was like, no, like, he basically just got rid of it uh, because all he wanted to do was practice and idolize his, his favorite producer. But this all gets me to this point. <laughs> that set of beats that Jay Dilla produced would, to me, if somebody could give it to me, would make me have a vastly different and incredible experience than if you just gave me the instrumentals of Pete Rock's original. Everything that I love about Jay Dilla would somehow be in those notes in a way that they aren't, or in a very different way. And that, that thought of reading, reading things with new eyes, um, that, that word vitality that you used, I think, is perfect. Like it has a di- Jay Dilla doing it has a different life to it, a different vitality. It like brings it back from the dead. It resuscitates it or something. Yeah. That's a great example. And it also takes into account your love for Jay Dilla. And like, so it's not that this guy doesn't have a point. This is one of the great ironies of the story is that there is a lesson about active reading and uh, how to how to interpret text or how to approach text is, I think, the best, uh, better way of saying it. There's a lesson there but it is embedded within this narrator's, you know, pretentiousness and just utter, like, absurdity, just ridiculousness in how he's describing it in a way that makes it, it, it seems to undercut 
<laughs> the the message. And I think that's actually very much in line with maybe the ultimate message, which is we're not supposed to know what Borges thinks about this. <laughs> right. We're supposed to talk about it. We're supposed to debate it. We're supposed to compare this story with others with other stories and compare it with other things that we've read and 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 ideas that we have and that's that's the that's the thing that brings that keeps it alive is that we don't know. Like if we knew that Borges was just satirizing it like a particular, I don't know, uh, surrealist or symbolist or like structuralist or something like that, that would take away a little bit from me appreciating this story. I have no idea what Borges thinks about this stuff. It reminds me, by the way, there is a, a bit in Tlon Ukbar um, where they talk about all works being viewed as, as coming from a single author. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, is, is a, a way in which they are reading their texts um, that is, you know, they're exercising their desire to think of all of them as having come from a singular author, and that influences the way they read their literature. There's this part that I love about uh, Borges is metaness all the time, his, his love of meta, which is that you could accuse Borges of being sort of arrogant and pompous in his, in his use of language. Yes. Right. In fact, this one doesn't have the, that as much, or at least it's embedded in the satire of it. <laughs> exactly. But he can get, he gets away here. He can be pompous in his writing and, uh, make it, is sort of accusatory of the narrator's pompousness, but he gets away. He gets away with his big words and long paragraphs. Well, yeah, you could accuse him of having it, trying to have it both ways. But he wants it both ways. You know, he wants to be able to say some of these things, and he also wants to be able to make fun of himself while he's saying them. I did, did I tell the story of? Um, I just have a f family friend who did his dissertation about Borges. I don't remember. But I'm listening it at a different time in my life in a different context. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, it's a very short story. All it, he finally got to meet Borges. He's Argentinian, and he he was getting his PhD, I think, at Stanford. And he he finally got a chance to meet Borges, and he told Borges that he was doing his his dissertation on on Borges. And Borges's response was really, uh, sh "Shouldn't you find somebody else to think about like that's more interesting than me?" Like he. he he just didn't like the thought of somebody spending so much time interpreting his stories, seemingly, right? And which is a very, very odd because he writes his stories in a way that makes me want to do this. That's an interesting, like the Coen brothers are like this too. They have these like, parables almost of in, in these movies that can be interpreted in all these different ways. And then when people come at them with any interpretation, they're like, they make fun of it almost. Look, we're just telling a story or we're just, they try to deflate it, um, the pretensions of that. And uh, yeah, I, I think that is a style of certain authors. They're dangling something. They're, they, they dangle the truth, right? They dangle the meaning in front of you. And they're motivating you to be curious about about it. But they don't want you to be reductive about it either. They they don't want you to f achieve close, like think you've achieved closure on it. That would be, according to this guy, a plebeian thing to do. <laughs> right. Right.
which again is so is so funny and so French. <laughs> yeah, he's embodied a French person. <laughs> uh, like this is very much also uh, a parody of a French intellectual. Uh, that's funny. I, I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh, all right. Well, have have we exhausted the meaning? <laughs> Not at all. Like I think we could do like a, a ten episode series just on this text too. There is like this also this other debate, which I don't find very interesting, but, you know, like, is it a different text if somebody else writes it? Like there's a metaphysical kind of question to that that gets debated in like, I don't find like, I think that's the kind of stuff maybe Borges would make fun of. But um, but there are all these other kind of philosophical questions that it does raise to me. It's it's more about reading than writing in a lot of ways. And it's definitely not about the ontology of art. It's about what to do when you have a text. Yeah. And... It's interesting whether it is an ontological question. So whether, let's assume that Pierre Menard really did write this chapter, these chapters, and that the narrator is reading them. Is that a different work of art, even though it is verbally identical? Like questions of ontology, like whether something really exists or not, get to me, I think, in the same way that they get to you, where it's like, well, like, obviously, in some sense, it's a different text. <laughs> I think that's a pretty, yeah, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to both read a story, say, and and know the story, what the story is telling you in its words and say, oh, that was a good story. And then... To add another layer, it'd say, what was, who was the author and what were they thinking? That adds another layer of richness to it that you can choose to interpret it or not, right? But, like, that seems obvious to me that it's almost obvious to me that, like, it seems like a boring debate in that every time a different person reads it, like, you and I reading the exact same translation of the Brothers Karamazov, they are, in some sense, going to be different works. And just they're different when you, yeah, when you and I read it, when you and I read it five days from now, there's a kind of a Heraclitus kind of aspects. You never step into the same river twice. And I think, you know, this gets to that, that the context, both that a piece is written and a context that you're reading it in is going to affect what you get out of it. Um inescapably and so there's in that sense there is not the same experience of reading something um you know even if it might have the same words i i think that it for anybody upon reflection it sh would agree that works of literature um go beyond the liter the literal words I, I i think there's interesting questions just like in the reality of this story is this did this actually happen you know is this a joke i think like what if you interpret this as a joke that was played on a gullible <laughs> sycophant you read it in one way even if you think it still raises interesting questions if you think that it's not a joke that this guy really tried to do it and then maybe cheated a little bit if he actually reproduced the copies then that's a different way of understanding it so even just within this story separating anything we know about borges and the time period just the content of the story itself just has multiple interpretations that there's just no uh, definitive 
answer to in the story, in the in the story, in the text. That, in the story, in the text. That's right. That's right. There, there, there aren't sufficient clues to tell you that for sure this was a joke. But there are clues. And like I, to be honest, I take this as a much more hilarious and interesting story if what this was about was a guy who was like always on this guy's nuts. He's always on Pierre Menard's nuts. Like he was just one of those guys who's just like, oh, you're great. It's like, can we hang out? Can we hang out? And Menard just told him like, you know what? I, mean? I loved your piece on the George Bull's symbolic logic. Yeah, that <laughs> that that Rook's, the, the, the pawn, the Rook's pawn. <laughs> Brilliant. It's hilarious to me. And then I just, I just want, I want to believe that that's what was going on, that this guy got duped by saying, you know, unfortunately, I, even though I have thou, I wrote thousands of rough drafts of the Quixote, I didn't keep any of them. So here's the final, but I totally wrote this. That's hilarious. <laughs> have you read Pale Fire? No. By Nabokov, I, you know, if we ever do another, that might be another one too. If we keep doing miniseries on text, because it definitely needs more than one episode, but it's, it's, it raises a lot of the same questions here uh, that, that this text does. In fact, it, I feel like it's got to be inspired by Borges um, to some extent. Um, anyway, Let's, uh, well, I'm sure this won't be the last Borges story that we do because we love talking about him. I want to be remembered when I'm no longer here uh, for our episodes on Borges. <laughs> what if somebody recreated a Very Bad Wizards episode word for word? Would it be ours? Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. Just a very bad wizard.